On today's podcast, we're going to learn how addiction is blind. We're going to learn how to pull back the curtain of what addiction really looks like in America and how to know when we have addictive issues to work on. We all face challenges, crucibles in life, that make us or break us. What matters is how we respond to such roadblocks. That's really what defines us. Through inspirational stories from all walks of life, this podcast will provide you with techniques to overcome and grow from life's most challenging experiences. Hello, everybody. I'm Mary Lee Aitenhan, coming to you live from the Dividend Studios in Brentwood, Tennessee, for my podcast, Crucible. You can find me on 8inhandhealthcoaching.com. And if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share. Addiction doesn't live in dark alleys with needles and arms. The majority of addictions happen right before our eyes with our family members, friends, and co-workers who hide their struggles well. Today we're going to talk about how addiction doesn't choose. Willpower is not a factor and we all have something that we're addicted to. Joining us to share today is my guest on Crucible and to share his inspirational story of redemption and his Crucible is my guest Matt Tompkins. He is a broadcast media personality and has been for 17 years in the Omaha area. He produces my show remotely and produces many podcasts from across the country. He's married and has two fur baby Westies, Barley and Teddy. He was born and raised in the Midwest and came from a conservative upbringing. So welcome, Matt. I'm so happy to have you. It's good to be here on the other the other side. I'm on the other side of your podcast. <laughs> I know, and I can see you. It's so great. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me. It's good to be on your podcast today. You bet. Well, let's get into your story and talk about, um, you know, the road that brought you to where you are today, of course, but just how things started for you. So my addiction to prescription opioids started, uh, it would have been in like 2010. uh, And it started how it starts for a lot of people. It started with uh, some injuries and surgeries and a prescription written by my doctor. And so it's it really began in, in 2010. At the end of the year, I was in a car accident, and I required, I had to have um, lower back surgery uh, in uh, the end of that year. And then in the beginning of the next year, I had a table saw accident with my hand and had to have reconstructive hand surgery. So for about a year mm-hmm. there, I was on, first it started off as, as um, you know, Vicodin, and then it moved up as my tolerance increased. My doctor increased the amount that I was taking to oxycodone, and oxycodone is really where things quickly spiral out of control. Because for those that don't know, oxycodone it's basically it's it is it's prescription heroin. That's what it is. It is more addictive wow. than morphine. It is more it's just it's on the same level as street meth and crack cocaine as far as how addictive it is. And I had no warning. I had no, um, hey, you know, when you stop taking this, you're going to go through withdrawals, which is like the worst sickness you could possibly imagine. Um, and, you know, I had no no preparation for any of that. And, you know, you mentioned how addiction doesn't choose. I feel like my story is one I, I enjoy sharing and I feel comfortable sharing now because I had everything on paper. If you looked at my life, I had everything going right. And yet I still found myself in this 
spiral of addiction that consumed my life. And so it can literally happen to anybody. They say it can take less than seven days of oxycodone prescription to become addicted. You know, methamphetamine, uh, crack cocaine can take one or two times doing it and you're, you're addicted, same as heroin. And so I had everything, you know, going for me. I had, uh, you know, a Midwest kind of traditional family upbringing. I don't think any of my, anybody in my family on either side had divorced even. So everybody was very, very whole structured family unit, um, had great parents, a younger brother had a great upbringing, uh, you know, got raised in the theater, music, arts, sports. I mean, so I had a really kind of uh, just a idyllic upbringing in childhood. And uh, and so I, when I got to this point where uh, I was kind of at the height of my my career, where I was hosting a television weekly television show that I also produced here in the Omaha market for NBC uh, that was very popular. I was hosting uh, radio shows every day on the air. So if you looked at me, I was kind of, I, I, uh, I joked around. I'm kind of was like the Steve Harvey of Omaha. Like I just had all these things mm-hmm. going on and it's awesome in the meat. And it was awesome. But at the same time, I remember talking to my therapist and I, I felt like I couldn't get the help and didn't know what to do for my addiction because, uh, I had no control over it. It was controlling my life. And, you know, I, 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 I couldn't see myself giving up what I had was like my, my dream job. And so I did what, you know, a lot of people do, as you mentioned, you know, people have who are addicted. It isn't that that stereotype we think of, of this guy passed down in the alley with a needle in his arm. Yeah. Um, it yeah. really is. Seventy percent of addicts in America are functioning addicts. They function. They go to work every day. You would not know that they had an, an, an addiction. Uh, by by first glance, my own wife and family had no idea for year the first three or four years of this had no idea, you know. And so it's something that you you hide because there is a tremendous amount of guilt and shame that you feel uh, with this, because the stigma in the past has always been too that it's all your fault that there's something wrong with you that you right. abused this or did something you know you made choices that you know led you to this and. You know, my case is proof that that in many people's are that isn't the case that, you know, I mean, I have consumed alcohol. I've never had an issue there. I've even when I had taken Vicodin, that wasn't really an issue. It was when oxycodone was the thing for me that mm. when I took it, it was almost instantaneous that my brain just became addicted. And so it, yeah. the struggle there was just, you know, how do you get the help that you need? How you you. You feel so trapped. I had nights of um, suicidal ideation quite a bit when it got really sure. bad where I would. And that just means that, you know, you, you never thought about I'm going to take my own life. and I'm going to actually t- do it. But you think it would be better if I was dead, if somebody ran me off the road. And I re- I've read old journal entries of mine where I was just praying that, you know, that I could die. Like, because yeah, I that's that's how desperate of a situation it is with addiction. And I, real quick, I'll just say like the analogy that I use is to kind of help people comprehend how dire it is. On 9-11, uh, we saw the jumpers, people who jumped yeah. from the building. And it was so hard for us to fathom. Mm-hmm. Like they would choose to jump to their own death rather than yeah. 
the torturous death that was behind them in the building. And so that's how, you know, when you look at people who, who attempt suicide or think about suicide, the position they're in isn't, you know, amazing life or death. It's I can continue being tortured until I die mm-hmm. or I can just choose to end it. And so that's why suicide looks like such a becomes a realistic option to a lot of people. And I was there where it's like you don't see a way out. You're in so much pain and torture and agony that you would you would rather die and just get it over with because you're suffering so greatly. Yeah. Wow. That's that's powerful and especially powerful the way that you just worded that. Um, I, I guess I'm thinking of the clients that have come to me and I know there's, you know, there's similarities, but yet there are not. Um, but I know that a lot of the people that are uh, you know, extremely overweight. They don't know what to do. They've been this way their whole lives. Kind of like they, it was for them, it was usually a pattern of environment um, or just for them choices that were thrown upon them, even as children. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to get help. They don't want to reach out. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. I've had people call me instead of their best, best friend because they don't want to have to tell their best friend how much they weigh. And, you know, so I, I can totally relate, (laughs) you know, how it's, it's hard to hide when you're overweight, but you can hide all that pain. Um, and probably that inner turmoil as well, that I'd be better off, you know, if somebody ran me off the road, like you said. Well, and I think today too, we've become so good at these avatars we've created on social media where, we're living a lie, basically. We're only portraying the best version yeah. of ourselves to the public, to our friends, yeah. and now, and even to our family. So then when there is something that has that much shame and guilt that comes with, like being overweight, there is so much shame that comes with that because of yeah. just societally how we've been brought up and told, you know, you yeah. know thin and beautiful is good and overweight mm-hmm. and, you know is means you're lazy or you're this or whatever the false stereotype might be and and you know so it, people why would you want to come forward and so I, I i will tell you this much though that that coming forward it is very cathartic and it is the first it's the hardest thing to do but when you do it i can promise you everybody who i i can't speak for everybody i would say most anybody i've everybody i've talked to when they've come forward they had the same experience and that is um, you are going to find relief. You are going to find mm-hmm. the next steps, whatever they are, because you're, you're no longer in it alone. And I remember at work, I, I had a, the last year and a half or two years of this, um, I was just really struggling. And my performance at work was, you know, not that well. And it was kind of in limbo with my position at the radio station I worked at. And um, my general manager came up one day and he just saw me outside and it was just, you know, it was, I was just in this constant state of going through physical withdrawals from not being on pills and then I would be on them. It's just such a roller coaster. And he said, what's going sure. on? Like, what's going on? And so I told him and I thought for sure, like, oh, well, I'm going to be fired or there's this stigma. Nobody's going to understand. And what I got was the opposite. Yeah. What I got was this gigantic bear hug. And he said, my Uh, brother is going through the exact same thing. And he was a pharmacist, uh, his brother, and lost his license and had to find his way back. He ended up getting it back and finding his life, getting his life back again. He said, man, he's like, I can't tell you because of, you know, health regulations, but 
There are at least five people in the building right now who have been to a 30 day rehab in the last two years. It's like, you're not alone. Wow. And so, and then you tell your family and your friends and it's like, you know, they may not know what to do or how to respond because I will tell you addiction. Mm -hmm. I totally get it. Personally, I don't understand alcohol addiction because until you've gone through it, you really don't know. You have no baseline to compare it to. But yeah, what people will do and I, for the most part, I mean, there are some jerks out there and there are some bad, you know, family members yeah. who will say you're on your own. You're weak. You're this or that. But by yeah. and large, people who really care about you will say, let's let's figure this out together. They will have empathy. They may not fully understand or relate to it, but they will be there to help you get through it and help find that that next step to yeah. getting clean, sober and into recovery. Yeah, that's fabulous. Um, yeah. And God bless your family for that. <clears throat> because it is, you know, it does take a community. It does take um, all of us caring about each other. And when you know you're in that, <laughs> you know, you're in a gold spot when you have friends like that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that aren't judgmental. Um You'd shared with me earlier that you didn't think that willpower was a choice, you know, like just get over it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of the things that clients have shared with me of, um, well, I was just born that way. Um, I was born heavy. Everybody in my family is heavy. Um, you made bad choices, you know, and again, there's all that shame and those statements of condemnation almost, um, and maybe none of them applied. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of times they've had a medical condition, same thing. They couldn't control. And people look at them like, oh, I don't want to sit by you on the airplane. You know, mm-hmm. go some, you know, go somewhere else. So Yeah, willpower, it's not to say that the choices we make don't have an impact. That that is very true. Like there are good choices yeah. and bad choices we make every minute of every day. And I will not true. sit here and say, like, oh, I made good choices when I was buying pills on the street or, you know, trying to manipulate the doctor or pharmacy to refill my prescription. So I'm not going to say that, like, those are good choices. Um, But with my addiction to opioids and they we have now extensive research on addiction, and how it chemically affects the brain. And this is not unique to opioids. It is the same. Like sugar is just as addictive as cocaine. Mm and food and you look at all the sugar and carbohydrates and high fructose corn syrup which is just sugar in our food and you look at our reaction to social media and gambling and other things like Mm. that they affect the brain the exact same way so the thing you have to understand is yes i get like people say well willpower i'm gonna white knuckle it i'm just gonna get through it that that's, that's the natural reaction we for Pretty much all of human history, it's a matter of if you are you strong or are you weak, you know, and, right. you know, and I, it's yeah. one thing like I, I know there are I think churches and religious religious organizations have come a long way in how we accept and help people with addictions. But there was this thing like, well, you must have done something wrong to desert. You know, you deserve mm-hmm. this or you did this. Uh, you're the one who chose to do the drugs. Therefore, that's why you're addicted, whatever it might be. And really what we know now is that the the our brain is chemically altered it's it's especially so it's with all those things that i mentioned it's especially so with opiates like heroin or oxycodone uh methamphetamine or adderall which is just a chemical carbon compound away from being methamphetamine 
um, and crack cocaine. Those three are probably the most highly potent versions of this. But what they do uh, in a larger degree than the others, but it happens with all addictions, is your brain is chemically changed. You are no longer the same person you were when you started prior to taking those. And it's important to realize that because if you ex- if you can know that and accept that, okay, this isn't me making these decisions anymore. It's right. my brain has been changed. What happens when you go through addiction, what people, I realized I had a problem and I think a lot of people can connect with this who have been through something similar. It's when you go, you transition from I'm taking this every day to feel good or to get high or whatever it is to I'm taking this now so that I don't get sick because when your brain Mm -hmm. goes through withdrawals, that is because your brain has been chemically altered to be completely dependent on these drugs. So your brain can no longer naturally produce dopamine and any other feel good chemicals that you would normally get. So if you stop taking something cold turkey, that's why alcohol, opiates and these stronger, you know, narcotics are so dangerous and can be deadly because your brain can literally you can have a seizures and you can die from withdrawals being that severe. So your brain is going to convince you to do anything and everything to not be sick. To not be sick. Because your brain interprets that as we are dying. We need to get the one thing that will keep us alive. Even though that's the thing, very thing that's causing us to feel, go through these withdrawals. You know, it is this, you know, uh, the the committee in your brain is kind of hijacked by one voice that's saying, this is, we we can't feel like this. We can't function. We're going to die. So we're going to do, it's just survival uh, mode, uh, completely survival mode. Uh, by your brain. So when you look at it that way and you say, okay, it's not just a matter of me wanting this more or having the willpower not to eat a cookie or the willpower to not, you know, take this pill or this whatever, or, or to log onto social media or have, I have to have my phone with me everywhere I go. I mean, that's a behavioral addiction that we can't live without it. We have to understand Mm -hmm. that our brains are chemically changed and, and just like our bodies are, as you know, with health coaching, like, we slowly yeah. gain the weight. It's going to slowly take time to lose the weight and keep it, keep it off permanently. And it's going to, it takes the brain two full years to recover from opioid, uh, opioid, opiate adi- uh, uh, addiction from the last time you took an opiate. Wow. Two full years for your brain to recover. Wow. And, and the truth is you may not be, you probably won't be the same person you were prior to that ever. And that can sound scary and that can sound daunting, but I can tell you this, that from my experience, you if you get reach out to get help, if you, you know, work whatever program it is you need to work, it could be smart uh, program, it could be NA or AA, um, seeing a therapist and a specialist, an addiction specialist, whatever it is, or a health coach like with you, with with your clients that mm-hmm. you help on a regular basis. Yeah. When you reach out and you ask for help and you admit, I'm not in this alone, I can't do this alone. I need help. Uh, and, and you start doing that. Yes, you are going to be a different person for the better, though, because as torturous as those eight years of my life were, looking back, I uh, would not change them for, for anything because I remember I was 35 and I remember I got hired. I was still doing, um, you know, I, I'm six years into my recovery as of this past January. And so. 
my first oh, year there Congrats. that I was like, in the last couple of years, it was kind of on and off and I had six months clean and whatever, a relapse. And so the last couple of years weren't as severe, but I remember getting, uh, when I was 35 and I remember I got this hired to do a, a news talk radio show, which is, was kind of a dream gig and I'm doing that and doing the TV show. And I'm like, you know, like I could not have accepted this job or done this job without going through what I also consider to be my crucible. And I feel like these mm. crucibles that we face that you talk about every week on your podcast, they are what define us for good or for bad. Yeah. You know, because I mean, you think about all the struggles you've been through in your life. Would you yeah. change that? I mean, yeah, it sucks that this happened. It was hard. No, but that's how I you wouldn't. find out who you really are. And it shapes you for yeah. being a better person uh, yeah. from that point moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, my crucible goes back a lot further than eight years. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it could be a lot more like 40, 43 years, you know, of, of, mm -hmm. of my life. Yeah. Um, or even longer. So and talking yeah, about it, really I can say that they like talking about it with people. Um, you start with those who you trust and you can be vulnerable with, but Moving forward from there, I mean, sometimes talking to complete strangers is more cathartic and easier to do than someone you know really well. Um, talking yeah. to a therapist or then eventually speaking out publicly. I knew that when I went through my ordeal, I said, you know, what helped me, ironically, was uh, I was, I'm very I'm very like into learning about what was going on in my brain. So I was doing a lot of like internet research of learning about how addiction, how it works, what are withdrawals? Why do I feel this way? This is horrible. Like what is going on with my body right now? And then learning about it in that sense, but then also reading the stories of that other people were sharing. And I remember, I remember I read a story about Eminem, the rapper, and I'm, mm -hmm. I could go either way. It's not like I'm an Eminem, huge Eminem fan or anything, but like, you know, I know him casually like everybody else does, um, you know, as, as an artist. And I remember reading an article about how he was taking 60 Vicodin a day and like 30 Xanax a day. And I remember thinking wow. that's like, that's about the same amount of pills I was taking, same drugs. And I thought mm. it kind of clicked in my head when I read that. I started looking back at all these figures from Johnny Cash to you name it, who, you know, Robert uh, Downey Jr., you name the person yeah. that you look up to, whether they're a writer, an artist, an actor, a musician, and they have all had these struggles. And that's what it kind of clicked yeah. with me. And I thought, you know, if these people who I look up to that have it all can still fall into this trap, again, addiction, addiction doesn't choose whether you're rich or poor, black or white, it doesn't choose based on anything. Yeah. It is it is an equal opportunity destroyer. And so yeah. if you look at it that way, you can you then then it looked a lot less daunting because I thought, well, if he if this happened to him, it isn't just me. And so I always felt right. a duty to like talk about my story when I felt comfortable and felt like I was in a secure place to talk about it, that I would be more than happy to talk about it. And I'd probably overshare with people. Too much, you know, I'll just brag, you know, casual conversations. I'll probably share too much. But I feel like we keep this stuff locked in and we, we don't talk about it. And you look at, I mean, just things that we all do. I mean, there's that book, Everybody Poops, mm -hmm. to get kids to say, listen, this is something everybody goes through. Or talking about <laughs> sex or relationships or the, the addictions, the bad relationships, bad people we've been addicted to, the food, 
our, our weight, our yeah. health, the drugs and alcohol, it can be any of those things. As long as you aren't talking yeah. about them, you aren't even giving yourself the opportunity to find a way through it. Ah, that's beautiful. If you aren't talking about them, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to get through them. Yeah. And the only way to get through stuff is to go literally through the middle of it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but first, by admitting you have a problem. So you you shared a lot about, and I, I, I guess I'd never thought about this until we've, we've had several conversations about social media being um, an addiction and also an addiction to your phone. And I know you've shared that, you know, these companies want you to be, <laughs> and they set it up so that you become addicted. So share, share a little bit more about that. And there are many, many more. Um, yeah. Behavioral areas. Addictions. Behavioral yeah. addictions are the dominant form of addictions. When we think of addiction, again, we usually think of the stereotype of like drugs or alcohol. But the reality is we all have something. Likely, I'm not saying we all, but like I would be shocked to find somebody who doesn't have something that they have been addicted to or are currently addicted to. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not addicted. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I eat healthy. And then, you know, we all get that weekly report at the end of the week on our phone and it says, I spent three hours a day minutes? on my phone and we don't even <laughs> notice it. People who say yeah. that they would rather give up their kids for a month than lose their cell phone for a weekend. This is, these are real stats. People say they would rather wow. lose their hand than their phone, you know? And it is, it is, when you look at it that way, you look at this lens of, okay, what, let's define what is an addiction, you know, it's the something that we can't live without that is not healthy, not good for us. You know, that is, is this dominating and taking uh, precedent over other things and people in your life? So, you know, with drugs, it, that becomes the thing you care about the most, more than people, more than yourself. You're destroying yourself. But let's take a look at social media and the apps. And, and this really came yeah. in 2011, around that area when the Facebook, Instagram, all these apps became mobile apps on our mobile devices when they were on our phones. And so you look, okay, well, it's harmless so social media. But we have, you know, 10 years of data or more that shows this is very harmful. You look at the rate of self-harm and suicide attempts by young girls and young teenage mm. girls, it is up over 151%. In just the last year, two years, I'm sorry, with COVID, it increased an additional 51%. So it is oh. very destructive. So if we're looking at other people, look at your mental health, and it's like, how many times have you been sitting at home and you're like, well, I don't have a problem. I can set it down. I can walk away from it. And how many times do you find yourself tapping that phone for the refresh to see if you got a text or an email? Or how many times have you refreshed your email just to see if you got something new? It's like hitting the slot machine. We're waiting for that, you know, yeah. that response, that dopamine release, which your brain releases dopamine when those things happen. And so a great documentary is The Social Dilemma. And this is where people who are the heads of Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of these apps... They oh, who used to be with the company who created and found the guy who created Gmail and they literally spell out in very plain terms that they intended to make all these things addictive, that they Ouch. preyed on our addictions. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Steve Jobs, 
who said he was asked why he never allowed his own kids, his own teenage kids, to have mm-hmm. an iPhone or an iPad. And his quote was, you never get high on your own supply. You know, we oh, hear that with drugs, wow. but that's true with this. I mean, there, there are two, two customer bases, consumer bases, that we refer to as users. One is drug users, the drug cartels. The other is social media platforms. You're a user. Wow. And so, you know, so when you stop and think about that or you think about how many times are you eating? And I, I'm guilty of this. So it's not said in a judgmental way, but like how many times have you eaten? For me, it's like Ritz crackers, like a sleeve of Ritz crackers will just disappear overnight. And I'm like, what did I even like? What the hell just happened? Like, what, where did it go? <laughs> it's the same thing. You're like, right. you know what? I'm stressed out. I can have a Coca-Cola or a sugary drink or I can eat McDonald's or I can do this or that and whatever it is. And eventually it turns into this thing that we're using to fill this emptiness, this void inside of us Yeah, because we don't want to deal with the underlying issues. So then you compound the unhealthy diet with uh, social media where we're looking at people and like we said, we're all avatars. We look at the Kardashians who've been airbrushed a thousand times. Nobody is really the filters and everything else. And we think, God, I'm not that beautiful. I'm not that happy. But we can't look away. Or that rich. I'm not that rich. <laughs> yeah. And we can't look right. away. We're just, we, get, we scroll and scroll and scroll. And so then when we feel that shame from that, then we turn to the food, the unhealthy foods. Or another one people don't realize they do is binge watching TV. Uh, we talk about yeah. binge eating. <clears throat> and if I told you, is binge eating good? Pretty much everybody would say, well, no, it's binge eating. Why do we think binge watching is good? Nobody talks about how watching 10 straight hours of the, you know, your Netflix show of choice is unhealthy. And it really boils down to we are trying to numb ourselves, our bodies and our minds from having to deal with the underlying issues. And I will tell you that suffering is a part of the human human experience. We try and numb ourselves from that. And we shouldn't. You know, pain is part of the healing process. And, you know, you think about all your successes and all your happiness, they would not feel happy. They would not feel like these great accomplishments if you hadn't had your lows. And that's why to circle yeah. back to the <clears throat> title of your podcast and my my belief mm-hmm. that the crucibles you go through are the most important things. Just like business people will tell you the failures in their career are far more right. impactful and crucial than their successes. You know, so if you don't if you don't welcome in the pain and the suffering that's part of the human experience and we numb ourselves with these addictive things to drugs, alcohol, behavioral addiction, social media, food, binge watching TV. If we if we numb ourselves, we're not only blocking our ability to feel the pain, we're blocking our ability to feel joy and happiness just the same. Yeah, right. And which is not anybody's intention, I'm sure. Um, but it's easier to be in denial, I think, over a lot of this. Um, most people would not admit that they're addicted to half the things that you've spoken about. Um, <clears throat> and who wants to go through that pain? You know, it's just easier to numb it and go on with your life. And because it's socially socially acceptable to be on social media to be on your phone you know to, to have, have your business drink. on your phone i'm shocked yes to have a drink 
there's a, I forget the title of the book, but I think it's called like, um, like how a girl can quit or how a woman quits. But it's all about the, these pressures, especially for women in this like drinking alcohol culture that we have. And, you know, it, it's really kind of shocking when you step, take a step back and see the, the forest <laughs> that is actually in front of you in that we do. It's like, you know, you're looked at as there's something wrong with you. If you're the one person in the group that doesn't want to have a drink, the, the response is right. why what's wrong. Are you okay? Can you not handle your drink? Like, yeah. like no, what it, let's, let's look like, is it normal to say, I don't really feel like having a drink because I just don't feel like having one. It's healthier for me yeah. not to, I'm better off not to. So I'm choosing making that choice. Is that healthy or what we tend to see as healthy is, no, it's perfectly fine to have three glasses of wine every night when you get home from work. Three glasses of wine, that's yeah. a lot of alcohol. That's a lot that's of a, numbing. That's a bottle. Yeah. That's a bottle, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and so we kind of have to step back and it's hard to be honest with ourselves. Uh, I, all these things I mentioned are things I too have struggled with and continue to struggle with. I mean, I'm not perfect. I still have, uh, I'm not anywhere close to perfect. I mean, I have bad days and I deal with depression and anxiety and you know, work can become an addiction where it's like, I'm just going to keep pushing through right. and just keep going, 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 going. And, yeah. Another you know, acceptable one. Yeah. But yeah. Again, I, you know. you deny, we deny ourselves the ability to, to experience joy and happiness um, when we numb ourselves. And that's one thing with opioids. I'll tell you that that is a drug that numbs you physically. It also numbs you emotionally. And so that means, you know, when you come out of that and you get into recovery, you start to all these sensations and feelings and it can be overwhelming in, in the beginning, but it's like these memories and feelings, the smells, or when you look at the night sky and it brings back childhood memories that make you tear up, you didn't feel any of that. These good memories, these good feelings, mm. uh, you, you lose all of that. So yeah, I'm not going to feel depressed, but I'm not also not going to feel happy. I'm just numbed. And I'm this, in this constant, like, limbo, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Constant purgatory. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Um, I remember I had gone into a, um, see a, a like, a, a female doctor, and I was just having issues of um, probably being perimenopausal. And the first thing she did, and I'm sitting there bawling in her office all of a sudden, you know, because I'm, I'm just desperately wanting some help. And so the first thing she does is she um, prescribes um, an antidepressant for me. And I go on that, and I felt like I was flatlined. You mm -hmm. know, there's no up, there's no down. I was literally not flatlined dead, but just flatlined emotionally. And I, I went off of it. It was like, I can't do this. And I never went back to see her because I thought this is not, this is not the problem, obviously, that you're trying to help. And any, um, any, or any numb. prescription drug and antidepressants are really, uh, I, you know, because I've been through that too. And they, a lot of times they have side effects. The truth of the matter is every study, every credible study points to antidepressants working for people with severe depression and severe anxiety mm -hmm. yes, for exactly. 18 months and then they don't work because your body oh. becomes tolerant to them. So you have to take more yeah. or additional medications. And the reality is when they do uh, their scale of like on a scale of one to five, how impactful is this drug versus something like, let's say a good night's sleep. Antidepressants are like a 1.2 or 1.3. A good night's sleep is over three points out of five. Mm. 
So a good night's sleep Mm -hmm. is twice as beneficial for you, for your depression and anxiety as an antidepressant. And that's not to say there I've been through severe depression and there are times postpartum depression. There are situations that were, you know, people need that medication. And so it's not to say that's bad, but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like it's normal to have highs and lows in this emotional human experience you know, if you can't get out of bed and you can't function, I've been been there where it's just you you can't you would rather die than exist. I mean, yes, talk to it, get a doctor to help you get through that. But in the long term, I think we think, oh, antidepressants will just make me happy all the time. And that's not that's not what they're designed to do. And that's not what they're capable of doing. Yeah, exactly. It helps you out of that constant purgatory, but it still um, is not giving you that freedom, like you said, to feel the joy and happiness in your life. That's just, to me, that's the whole point. So, absolutely, Matt, I sure, yeah, I sure appreciate your time. And man, you are so knowledgeable and spin out all those facts and stats. And um, I appreciate that you are, you have figured out a lot of why, you know, whatever you went through, um, how it's affected you. And I just applaud you for your sobriety and, you know, and just continuing to want to help people. Yeah. I would, I think there can't ever be too much oversharing, (laughs) you know, when it comes to that. And if you turned around to me in the grocery store and told me that I would have been like, wow, tell me more. You know, I just, I just think it's so incredible. It's definitely breaking. It's not, it's still there, but like, it's not as bad as it was 10, 20 years ago, for sure. I, the last thing I would leave people with is that I did things the hard way. I always tell people, like, I did things the hardest way possible. The only thing that could have made it harder is if I just died. I mean, I have overdosed several times. And so the mm. fact that I'm still here today alive and breathing is a miracle in and of itself. And so I, I yeah. tell people, like, you don't have to do it the way that I did it. I mean, I refuse to go into treatment. I refuse to, you know, to really get into a program and work a program I really did it like I tried to do it and ended up doing it myself, which is I'm a rare case study of getting through. And I say myself, I mean, still with my family, friends and support. But like as far as I never checked into an inpatient treatment center type of situation. And, you know, I look back on it and I I wish I had done it the smart way and not the hard way, because I probably would have gotten five years of my life back had I just bucked up and done it, you know, and just said, listen, the TV show, the career That'll still be there when you get out. Spend 90 days, get the help you need, and then go back to doing that, you know, and instead of prolonging it and just doing it the hard way. So I've learned a lot, and I'm happy to share that with people, but at the same time, I can't, I would tell people, don't do it the way I did it. Like, ask for help, get help, uh, do this with people who care about you, professionals Mm -hmm. and personally, and, and you can get out of it a lot faster and get back to a happy a place in your life a lot faster than I think people realize. I When I was addicted, I would always look back and I would say, man, had I gone to rehab three months ago, I'd be getting out clean, sober, and on my path to recovery. Mm-hmm. And every three months, I'd think that. And then it would be years. And I'd think, man, had I done that three years ago, I wouldn't have been st- suffering the last three years like I have been. And then it's eight years. Yeah. And it's like, like, wait a minute. Like, at some point... Yeah, it's okay. The, Enough's you know, enough. Yeah. I think it's a Abraham Lincoln quote, maybe that's, you know, what better time than now and what better person than you? So it, it, there is no perfect mm. time to do it. You just got to do it. 
What better time than now? What a better person than you? Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Matt. You're amazing. And I just wish you all the best in the world. And thank you for producing my show every week. And, um, and a shout out to Two Brothers Creative here in Omaha. And I'm here in Nashville. And so, yay, how awesome is that, that we can be connected and 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 we're not <laughs> even close. <Yeah. laughs> so, well, thanks for having anyway, me. Anyway, you bet. Have a great week. Bye.